This morning, we're in Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> you can turn there with us. Um, last week, we jumped back into this series on Galatians that we've been, we, we were working through in the fall. We took a break around Christmas time, Advent and Christmas and the new year, and now we're getting back in. And if you, if you are new or new-ish to King's Cross, it's worth just pausing and, and explaining how we approach preaching here. Uh, in general, as a, as a rule of thumb, our approach to preaching is to pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it section by section. And depending on the book, a section may be five chapters or it may be two words, uh, but that's generally the, the approach we take is we work our way through section by section. And the reason we do that is because we want God to set the agenda for what we talk about at church. You don't want me to set the agenda for what we talk about at church. You don't want me to come up here and give you all my opinions on cultural issues or political issues. You don't want me to give you 10 tips for a better marriage or 10 tips for improving your finances. That, that would not be helpful or life-giving, and there's a lot of people who would be better equipped to give you those sorts of tips than I would. The, the job of pastors in a church and preachers is to let God speak. And we believe that God uh, isn't just out speaking, you know, randomly, but he speaks through what he has spoken, which is the Bible. And so we, we come to his word and we, we open it up and we, we submit to it and we ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to see Christ in it. And that would change us. It would change our hearts and our affections and our desires. And ultimately it would change the way that we live. So that's what we've been doing. We've been working our way through Galatians. This morning we're in chapter five and reading just two verses, verses 24 and 25. So turn there with me. If you haven't, I'll read God's word for us this morning. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> These two verses in Galatians 5 serve as sort of a bridge in this chapter. They're, they conclude the previous section, which we saw last week, and they introduce the next section, which we'll think about next week. Uh, just as a refresher on last week, we saw this, this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And as a reminder, or if you weren't here, we said that flesh doesn't mean body and spirit doesn't mean soul. Paul is not saying that the material part of the person is bad and the, the immaterial part of the person is good. What he's talking about are two sort of operating principles in the heart of the Christian. The flesh is the fallen human nature that still exists in us, the corrupt human nature and desires. The Spirit, on the other hand, is when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us and we're renewed. It's, the Spirit is redeemed human nature. And the picture that Paul gives us is that in the Christian, these two operating principles are still at war with each other constantly, the flesh and the Spirit. This week, he kind of concludes that section in verses 24 and 25. And the way that he does it, just think for a second with me about the structure of these two verses. The two verses sort of rhyme. There's an A-B-A-B structure to these verses. The A's rhyme with each other and the B's rhyme with each other. Here's what I mean. The first verse, 24, A, if you belong to Jesus, B, you have crucified the flesh. And then the second verse, A, if you live by the Spirit, B, keep in step with the Spirit. The two A's, belong to Jesus and live by the Spirit, are describing what it means to be a Christian what it means to actually be a Christian. The two Bs, you have crucified the flesh and keep in step with the Spirit, are describing the experience of being a Christian. So first the reality of being a Christian, then the experience, what it means to be a Christian, and then what it's like to be a Christian. 
This morning, that's how we're going to take this text, just uh, two parts, basically asking those two questions. First, what does it mean to be a Christian? And second, what is it like to be a Christian? So first, what does it mean to be a Christian? Paul has two reference points here. One is Christ and one is the Spirit. First, he says a Christian is someone who belongs to Christ. Now, belonging to Christ, think with me for a second. In a, in a world of self-determination, in a world of radical individualism, a world that, that tells you you need to go and do your own thing and be the captain of your own ship, does it sound like good news to hear you belong to somebody else? Or does that sound a little shocking, a little disorienting? Uh, have you all, there's, there's a, um, a word that was coined, the term that was coined that refers to animals in the zoo. It's called zoocosis. Are you all familiar with this term? Zoocosis is the word that, that people have given for, you know, like the, the typical picture of the lion walking around behind its glass cage, sort of moping with its head down, just pacing back and forth for hours on end. Why is it doing that? Well, people said it's doing that because it's out of its natural habitat, and the habitat that it's in is so unconducive to its nature that it just sort of slips into this state of psychosis. It's depressed. This is the reason it's walking back and forth like this. There's a, an author named Alan Noble, who has written a book where he says that human beings in the West today are experiencing a sort of zoocosis. He says that our environment is not properly fitted to our nature. And he describes this. He says the reason this is is because we have created a society based on the assumption that we are our own and we belong to ourselves. But he says if this is fundamentally wrong then we should expect people to suffer from their malformed habitat. So you see what he's saying? He's saying we've, we've built a whole society in the West on the idea that we are our own and we belong to ourselves. But if this is wrong, then we should expect that we would slip into a form of zoocosis, where there's, there's this sort of underlying low-grade depression, anxiety, fear, worry that's always operating underneath the surface. But he says the difference between us and the lion is that we're more successful at treating our zoocosis and adapting to our environment. We don't mind pacing back and forth, he says, especially if we can listen to a good podcast as we do. So he says that the difference is basically we distract ourselves out of our zoocosis, right? We have this, this underlying low-grade sense that something's not right, but we just distract ourselves from it. And one of the, I think, powerful and countercultural claims of Christianity in our day that can sort of puncture that sense that something's not right in a, in a profound way, is the truth that one, you do not belong to yourself, and two, that that is actually very good news. It doesn't sound like good news at first, but it is. Indeed, many of the Christian catechisms, which are teaching tools that are, that are formed as questions and answers throughout the centuries, the first question to many of these catechisms has been, what is your only hope in life and death? We do this with our kids in Sunday school and, and our kids at home. The first question, what is your only hope in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong to God. Now, why is that good news? Well, think about it with me. One, if I belong to myself, I must secure my own future. If I belong to myself, I look out into the future and I say, I have to make sure that I get everything in place to make sure that I have a good future, right? I have to save enough money. I have to buy the right house. I have to marry the right person. I have to have the kids. And if, if, if something messes up along the way, all that weight falls on me to try to get it back on track. But if I belong to Christ, then he has already secured my future. And it is unbelievably bright, <laughs> 
It's better than any future I could ever hope to secure for myself in this life. If I belong to myself, I must redeem my past. And I can tell you personally, this is, this is a weight that would be unbearable. I look back at my own past and I see things that have happened into my, in, in my life that aren't particularly anybody's fault, just things that have happened that are totally crushing and I can't find a way to explain why they might have happened. I can't find the silver lining, right? And not only that, but I look on, on the way that I've lived. I look on in my past the way that I've spoken to people, the things that I've said, the things that I've done to hurt others, and I don't see a way that I can redeem that. But if I belong to Christ, the promise is he has already redeemed my past. This week in our discipleship groups, studying through Joshua, we're going to, to think about the person of Rahab. Okay, the, the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, and they send two spies into the land of Canaan, and the spies are sheltered by a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. Now, if you were creating a sort of like moral hierarchy in their day, a Canaanite prostitute would be the lowest person on the hierarchy, right? She's, first of all, she's the wrong sex, the wrong gender. She's a woman in their day, right? That's, that's the wrong, starting off on the wrong foot. Second, she's the wrong gender, or she's the wrong, uh, she's the wrong nationality, the wrong race. She's a Canaanite. She's the wrong religion. She worships the Canaanite gods. And she's immoral. She's a prostitute. And yet she brings these guys in and gives them shelter. And why? Because she says, I've heard about your God and I fear him and I want to be on his side. And as a result, she, she is brought into the Israelites. She's spared when they come into the land. She becomes one of them. And the New Testament actually raises up Rahab as, a, as an exemplar of faith. And not only that, you go to the book of Matthew and read the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab is the great, great, great grandmother of King David, meaning that Jesus comes from a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. She couldn't have done that. She couldn't have redeemed her past. But look at what God does in her life. If I belong to myself, I have to create my own meaning and significance. Uh, we are the first society in human history that has told people, you have to create your own meaning and significance. And it's packaged as a gift, right? You get to create your own meaning and significance. How wonderful. It's crushing us. It's crushing us. We don't, we're not meant to bear that weight. If I belong to Jesus, Jesus has already given me meaning and significance, not by, by giving me the opportunity to write my own story, but by bringing me into his if I belong to myself, I have to bear the pressure of making sure every moment moves me toward my purposes for my vision of the good life. But if I belong to Christ, he ensures that every moment moves me toward his purposes for my life. Do you see what a relief that is in a pressure-filled, exhausting, demanding world to be able to say with the catechism, my only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, that I don't belong to myself, but I belong to Christ. And why? Why do we belong to Christ? 1 Corinthians 6 says that, that you are not your own because you were bought with a price. What was the price? The price was Christ's blood on the cross. Revelation 5 says he went to the cross and purchased with his blood a people for God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is exhorting the elders, the pastors at the church at Ephesus, and he says, do your best to shepherd the flock which God purchased with his own blood. We were we were enslaved to sin, to the devil, to the world, to ourselves. 
And Jesus paid the price to ransom us and redeem us. And that changes everything, right? In, um, in The Count of Monte Cristo, not the, not the book, but the movie. It's a little different in the book. But just after Dantes has escaped from prison, and he washes up on shore, and he's running around like a lunatic, and he happens to bump into this band of, uh, of, of smugglers. And their captain looks at him, and he says, it's actually very convenient that you're here. You can help me. And he says, okay, how can I help you? He says, well, we've got this guy named Jacopo, and he decided to keep some, some gold back for himself. And so we were just going to bury him alive, but some people have started asking for mercy for him. And he says, okay, I still don't see how I can help you with this situation. And he says, well, here, uh, I don't want to be shorthanded, and I want my men to see some sport, so you and Jacopo are going to fight to the death, and whichever one of you lives gets to come on board and, and join us as a smuggler. And so Dante says, okay, and he fights him, and he, he whips him. In three seconds, he's got him pinned down on the ground. And instead of killing him, he, he stabs his knife into the sand. And he looks at the, the captain, and he says, hey, spare him, right? He's already suffered enough at the prospect of being buried alive. You, now you can have an extra guy on board, right? So this is, it's a win-win. Everybody wins. And the captain says, okay. And, and then Jacopo, he's down on the ground, and he grabs Dante, and he pulls him close. And he says, I swear on my dead relatives, and even the ones who aren't feeling too good, that I am your man forever. And the rest of the story, he's his right-hand man, and he does everything that Dantes wants him to do. That's what it's like, right? When we've been redeemed by Christ, we say, I am your man. I am your woman forever. You saved me. You purchased me with your blood. How could, I, how could we hold anything back from a, a Savior who was willing to pay such a high price? to redeem us. This is not, this is not a begrudging slavery. This is a, a joyous and beautiful thing. The second way that Paul describes what it means to be a Christian, first, you belong to Christ. Second, he says, you live by the Spirit. How does the death of Jesus Christ on the cross get applied to you? Like, how, do, how does the, the price that he paid, the payment of his blood, actually cover your expense? The answer that Paul gives and that the Bible gives is by means of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, this religious teacher named Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, how can somebody enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused and he says, what do you mean born again? Can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, no, you have to be born spiritually. What's born of, of natural cause is natural, but what's born of spiritual cause is spiritual. That what he's talking about is when the Holy Spirit comes and causes us to be born again. Jesus says, the wind blows where it will, and you don't see it coming, and you don't know where it comes from. You just feel it, and that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. The point here is that rebirth and redemption go together, Right? Jesus died for you, and the Spirit actually applies that death to your life. You, you're given the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, and the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ. So we can say as Christians, I am in Christ, and His Spirit is in me. I belong to Him. He gives me His Spirit. Now, this gets us into the doctrine of the Trinity, the most, the most basic foundational doctrine belief in, in Christianity is that we believe in what we call the Trinity. If you were to go to any person of any other religion and say, do you believe that there is one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit? They would say, no, I do not believe in that God. <laughs> right, this is the, the unique thing about Christianity. And what we believe is, is, as I said, there's one God. There's only one God, but he eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, each of them is fully God, but there are not three gods. There is only one God. And the, the point that Paul is hitting on 
is that those three persons work together in relation to us. Right? We sometimes have this idea of the Trinity as we come to the Bible, that, that each person is doing their own thing, that the Father is just like woke up on the wrong side of the bed and is angry and is ready to punish all of humanity until the Son comes in at the last second and says, don't do it, Dad, right? Punish me instead. And then the Spirit, like who knows what he's doing. He's just going off and doing his own thing, making people act weird. That is not the picture that the Bible gives us. The Bible tells us that these three persons work together. Everything that God does is done by the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Your salvation was willed by God the Father in eternity past. It was accomplished by the life, death, and resurrection of the Son, and it is applied to you through the Holy Spirit. And, and when is it applied to you? Paul says it, it's applied at the moment of faith. Galatians 3, 2, just back a couple chapters, he asks, did you receive the Spirit? Did the Spirit come into your life by works of the law or by faith? Did you earn the Spirit by your good behavior? Or was it by believing and trusting in Jesus? He's saying the, the main point of Galatians, you can't work your way into salvation. You can't earn the Holy Spirit. You receive all this by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, what is it like to be a Christian? Uh, there's an opportunity here to introduce another theological concept. So we're, we're, in, we're back in class for a couple minutes this morning. You guys, are you hanging with me? You good? Good. Uh, this is a, a theological term that's been really, really helpful to me, or concept that's been helpful to me. And it's two big words. The, con the term is inaugurated eschatology. Don't worry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break it down, okay? Eschatology is the study of the last things. It's the study of the end. What happens, how does the world end? What happens when it all wraps up? When Jesus comes back, what happens then? It, inaugurated means it started, right? When the, the inauguration is when we inaugurate a new president, right? He starts to uh, lead as president. So inaugurated eschatology says that the kingdom of God on earth, the last things, that's already started. And it started when Jesus came to earth for the first time preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Galatians 1 talks about this. It says, Paul says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from what? He says, from this present evil age. He's saying, even while you still live in this age, there's a new age that is broken into this one, and you are living in both ages at the same time. The kingdom of God is here, but it's only here in part. The last things have begun, the Bible tells us, but they're not here in full yet. It is already, but it's not yet. It will be brought to completion when Christ comes again to renew all things. Now, this already but not yet notion, I think, helps make sense of so much of our experience as Christians. Think with me about the ditches on either side of this, okay? If inaugurated eschatology, already not yet, is, is right down the middle, an over-realized eschatology that focuses only on the already and not the, yet, the not yet would say, Christ has come. My flesh has been crucified. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. I live by the Spirit. I should not keep sinning. I should not struggle anymore. I'm already victorious in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. I should, I should already be at the next level. And so what does this do? When we, when we think this in our lives, it creates shame right? Because I should be doing better than I am. I shouldn't still be struggling with this. I shouldn't, I shouldn't still be battling the same sin that I've been battling for 10 years. I should be past this by now. I should know more than I do, 
right? And if people find out that I don't know enough about Christianity, or if people find out that I'm not as good as I think that they think that I should be, then what? I'm gonna, they're not going to accept me. And so I'm just going to hang around on the margins. I'm not really going to get to know people. Or if I do get to know people, then what? Then I'm going to live in secrecy. I'm going to deceive people. I can't really be known because if I'm really known by other people, then they'll know, right? I'll be outed as an imposter. So, so we live in shame or we live in secrecy. And these things, they'll, they'll ruin our lives if we let them continue. The other ditch, though, is an under-realized eschatology. It only focuses on the not yet and not the already. So you heard last week's sermon, right? The flesh and the spirit are going to keep battling until glory. For the rest of our lives, the flesh is still going to be there wreaking havoc. And you hear, you hear that and you think, okay, well, I guess it's never really going to get any better. I guess I'm going to struggle with this sin to the same extent for the rest of my life. And I'm never going to make strides and I'm never going to improve and I'm never going to get past this and, and I'm never going to grow. And what does that do? It leads to resignation, right? It, it, you stop trying, you become cynical. Uh, it leads to spiritual depression and defeatism. The gospel comes down and cuts right across both of those things and says, yes, the flesh and the spirit are still at war, but it's not an even fight. The flesh has a hand tied behind its back. And not, uh, more than that, the flesh, Paul says, is nailed to the cross. And it might still be gasping for air. It might still be kicking and screaming on its way out, but it doesn't have a fair chance. It's lost the full force of its power over you. And you, as a Christian with the Spirit, can actually live in victory over the flesh. Now, I don't want to give the impression that it's easy, or right? it's not. Any, any sports fan knows that the best team can lose to the worst team if they show up unprepared and they don't fight. So I'm not saying it's easy. But I am saying, Christian, you have the resources to have victory over the flesh. You have the spirit. You have the church. You have the word. This is what it means. This is what it feels like to live as a Christian. This is the experience of the Christian. Paul says, uh, again, with reference first to Christ, then the spirit, he says, you have crucified the flesh. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. We, we probably shouldn't make too much of the, passive, uh, the active verb here, you have crucified, and the passive verb in chapter 2, you have been crucified. It's probably referring to the same thing, right? The experience of being united to Christ by faith. It's beautifully pictured in our baptism. We, we got to witness a baptism two weeks ago, and it's this beautiful picture of the old self going down into the water. And then being buried with Christ by faith, and then the new self coming back up, leaving the flesh behind, right? Christian, remember that. Remember your baptism. As you're struggling, as you're battling with the flesh, let your baptism be the tangible reminder that you were buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life with him. Then he says, uh, after he says, you've, been, you've crucified your flesh, he says, you live by the Spirit. Uh, since you live by the Spirit, since you've been born again, he says, keep in step with the Spirit. This, this phrase literally means to hold to the Spirit, to agree with the Spirit, to be drawn up in a line beside or move alongside or to be in sequence with the Spirit. So you get the picture, right? Saying keep up with the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, move in time with the Spirit. Right? Don't march to the beat of your own drum. March to the beat of the Spirit's drum in you. Now, this is easier said than done, right? And I, I, it, I think it's so, it's so vague 
what it means to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, that we feel the need to make it more obvious. So we, we add a bunch of things to it. And we say walking with the Spirit means this, that, and the other thing. And we come up with all this stuff. I, I don't think that's it. What, is it. what does it really mean to walk, to keep in step with the Spirit? Remember Galatians 2, I read a few minutes ago. It says, did you receive the Spirit by works or by faith? Paul goes on. He says, after beginning by the Spirit. So he's talking about beginning by the Spirit is when you first receive the Spirit by faith. He says, after beginning by the Spirit, do you think you're going to finish by the flesh? Does God give you the Spirit and work among you by your own efforts or by believing what you heard? So what he's saying is that the way that we keep in step with the Spirit is the same as the way that we originally received the Spirit. Not by working really hard, but by hearing the gospel, by believing, by having faith, by trusting God, by trusting what Jesus has said. So let's make this just more practical, work it out with a couple of examples. Go back to the list of uh, the works of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. One of the works of the flesh is selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? Ambition is drive, right? Motivation. I want to, I want to accomplish things. Selfish ambition then is when you want to accomplish things, why? For, for yourself, for your own purposes, for your own desires. And Paul says, this is a work of the flesh. So w- when I feel, how do I keep in step with the spirit here? When I feel selfish ambition kicking up in me. And if you are praying, if you're in tune with the Spirit, you will feel it, right? He'll warn you that it's coming, or he'll tell you immediately after the fact so you can repent and grow. If you feel the flesh rearing its ugly head, what, what do you do? What do I do when I feel selfish ambition arising, or what should I do? One, I should be reminded of Christ. First of all, I should pray, and the Spirit will remind me of Christ who Philippians 2 says, was not motivated by selfish ambition, but emptied himself. The, the great one who sat at the right hand of the Father came and took on the lowest form, the form of a servant, and went to the cross and died a criminal's death. Why? Because he wasn't considering his own interests. He was considering the interests of others. And if I see that even Christ could do that, then shouldn't I, who I didn't start at the right hand of the Father, shouldn't I do that as well? And I'll be reminded of Jesus saying it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And I'll remember that, that everything that I've ever needed or wanted is found in heaven. And First Peter says it's kept there for me, imperishable and undefiled. It's waiting for me. So what do I need selfish ambition for? Evidently, if I, if I believe the Bible, then I believe that the good life is found not in going and getting my own, but in imitating Christ by giving and sacrificing and receiving what I need from Christ. So I feel that, I hear that, I repent of my selfish ambition, and I turn and start serving others. Another example, fruit of the Spirit, peace, okay? I start to feel stressed. This happens every day. I start to feel anxious or worried or just frustrated and bent out of shape about something. I don't feel at peace. What does faith look like? What does hearing and receiving the gospel look like? Well, I remember what Jesus said, worrying will not add a single day to your life. <laughs> you can't, by worrying, add a single day to your life. Okay, what else does he say? He says, he says, don't worry. Okay, Jesus, why shouldn't I worry? Because there's a God who is your father who knows how many hairs are on your head and he knows how many stars are in the sky and he cares for you more than you care for you. <laughs> he loves you more than you love you. Why worry? Why not have peace if that's true? <laughs> Jesus promised we'd have troubles in this world. He also promised he's conquered the world. So I hear the gospel. I hear that. I believe it. I repent of my worry. I remember, again, that my life is hid with Christ on high. What can the world do to me? What can mere humans do to me? So why worry? 
and you keep walking. This is what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit. And this is the Christian life. It's lived in the already, not yet. It's lived in becoming who we already are. (laughs) We are justified by faith. We are wholly righteous by faith. We live our life keeping in step with the Spirit, becoming what we already are. In um, The Horse and His Boy, one of the Chronicles of Narnia stories, the main character is a kid named Shasta. He grows up with this really mean dad who's a fisherman and he's all he's ever known his whole life is the smell of fish. And he's never really seen any other people. And, and one day this, this uh, horse and its rider come to visit and turns out it's a talking horse. And the horse says, hey, let's you and me get out of here. So Shasta gets on the horse and he starts riding and the horse is taking him to Narnia because the horse is a Narnian horse and he's trying to get back to Narnia. And uh, they have to stop in this capital city of the country where, where Shasta grows up called Tashban. And they get there, and he sort of gets, gets out of his way, and he bumps into the, some of the main characters of, of the book, right, the, the four kids. He bumps into Lucy and Edmund. And uh, they, they see him, and they say, Prince Corin, where have you been? And he's like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? I'm, not, I'm Shasta, you know? And so he stays there convinced that he's Prince Corin, and he's, like, hurt his head or something. And so he stays there, and all of a sudden, this other boy climbs in through the window, and he looks at him, and it's like he's looking into a mirror. And he goes, oh, you must be the Prince Corin that everybody's been calling me. So Shasta sneaks out. Prince Corin stays. Eventually, they get to, to Narnia together. They get to Archon Land, where Prince Corin is the prince, and his dad, King Loon, is the king. And when Corin introduces Shasta to his dad, his dad calls everybody around, and he says, look at these two boys. And he says, can there be any doubt? And as Shasta hears his origin story, he learns that he and Prince Corin are twin brothers, and they were separated at birth. He was kidnapped and he was taken away. And throughout all this time, Aslan has protected him and now he's brought him back. And he learns, I've been a prince the whole time. Shasta's not even my real name. My father's not this mean fisherman. He's a king. And he has to spend the rest of his life now learning to become what he already is. He didn't become a prince when he met his real father. He already was a prince. He just didn't know it. And he didn't know how to live like it. This is what the Christian life is, right? We are, we are God's children. We are the princes and princesses of the universe. And we're filled with the Spirit. And by faith, we are righteous, we are holy, we are good. And yet we're learning every day what it means to live like that, how to put off the flesh and keep in step with the Spirit, how to put off the old self with its passions and desires and put on the new self. 